everybody. Welcome to episode 53 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. It's nice to be with you today, yes, Chris. Is. I feel Hello. like we haven't seen each other in a little while, over the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> Weekends can seem really long sometimes. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, before we dive right in, which I think we're going to do because we have a lot to talk about today, including um, discussion of our little women read-along I just had, I feel like the editorial section of the paper or something, I have one correction from episode 52, which is I referred to Barbara Kingsolver's nonfiction book as Animal Vegetable Mineral, and the book is actually titled Animal Vegetable Miracle, which um, I did correct in the show notes when I was doing them, which is when I discovered my error. So hopefully this is in my uh, TBR soon because it's a book all about the year that she went kind of off the grid with her family mm-hmm. and they started to grow all their own food and stuff like that. So, Animal Vegetable Miracle, Barbara Kingsolver. So what are you currently reading? Currently reading? Wow, we're just diving right in. What I am currently reading a book that was recommended to me. It's called Why Buddhism is True by Robert Wright. The subtitle is the Science and Philosophy of Meditation and Enlightenment. Mm. And if the name rings a bell, Robert Wright, um, he has written several different books, one of them called The Evolution of God, another one is Non-Zero, and The Moral Animal is mm. another one of his earlier books. And he is a psychologist who studies evolutionary psychology. Oh, how interesting. Yeah, so it's, you know, he kind of studies... You know, everyone knows about Darwin, that animals, including human animals, do things to propagate our genes, that that is the point of our existence. So he looks at how the mind has evolved to be in line, or how the the mind has evolved with that template in yeah. mind. So, huh. interesting. So this yeah. was recommended to me by a friend. I started listening to it on audio mm. when I, I drove down to Stanford, and it's like an hour drive. So I had the book already because I bought this. I um, went to RJ Julia up in uh, Wesleyan and picked it up there. But then when I had that drive, I thought, I want to start it now. So yeah. I downloaded the audio, too, because I had it credited Audible. Perfect. So, yeah. So it's good so far. Yeah, really intense. I think I'm going to probably, it's probably nice to have the audio, but then dig into the, the yeah. paper. Because I need to yeah. see it and, yeah. and mark things up and everything to really get a clue. Cool. So that is um, what I'm currently reading. I'm, Why Buddhism is True by Robert Wright. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Oh, that's okay. I'm I kept cur- talking. <laughs> <laughs> I'm currently reading Providence. Oh. A novel by Carolyn Kepnes. Nice. This is one of the books that Michael Kindness talked about when he was with us on episode 39. At that time, it was he was handing us an arc, but it came out last week, 619. So you guys can go and get it if you want. It's not really in my wheelhouse. Really? It's kind of sci-fi-ish. You know, it's mm-hmm. the it's the story of the kid who's Walking to school, he has to take the back way to school and not take the bus because he's bullied and he's on his way to school and he runs into what was one of their substitute teachers the year before. He gets knocked out. That's the last thing he can remember. So it's a little bit sci-fi in nature because I'm still too soon in it to know what really happened, but I've gotten that part. That's not really a spoiler because that happens straight away, I think, in the first chapter. So 
And it's getting a lot of buzz. And it also is from the imprint, is that how you say it? Called Lenny, which is Lena Dunham's imprint. Oh, interesting. Yeah, with um, Penguin Random House. So she, Lena Dunham has the little letter in the front that often comes inside of an arc, kind of doing a little marketing blitz for it. Mm -hmm. So that surprised me. I didn't realize that. So... Providence by Carolyn Kepnes. More to come next episode. Oh, nice. I want to read that, too. Uh, Michael spoke so highly of it, and then I I know I've I've tried not to read the reviews, but from the couple reviews that some friends I know have written, it sounds like one I'm going to probably enjoy. And I think it's going to be a fast read. It's actually, I made the mistake of starting it while whilst still reading Little Women, (laughs) and that was a bit of a problem for me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. it's like, oh, I'm in the uh, here and now versus back in the day. So <laughs> Nice. <laughs> but that's all I've got going. How, are, do you have anything else you're... You know, I, I put down the Fitzgreen Hellick biography mm-hmm. while, you know, while I was reading Little Women. I ha- needed to focus on that. I'll get back to that. So I'll get yeah. back to that. And that's a book, too, that I think it'll be fine to read a chapter here and there. So sure, I'm not, yeah. I'm, I'm not in a rush to read it. Or to get through it, but I would like to continue to learn a little bit more about him. Yeah, in nonfiction, I tend to be able to kind of step away from much more easily than fiction, mm-hmm. you know, and come back and read it here and there. And I feel like my mind steps back into it. Fiction, I struggle, especially if I've inserted a ton more characters through as the weeks have passed, then yes, I'm hopeless. Exactly, so. I agree. <laughs> So just read. What have you just read, Emily? I finished Unsheltered by Barbara Kingsolver, and I loved it. And it was a really interesting follow-on to Richard Power's Overstory because it has quite an environmental tone to it, just like Overstory. Very different books, but, you know, just kind of that environmental idea. And it's a book where she alternates chapters kind of around this house in this neighborhood in New Jersey where a famous woman, the the chapters that take place in the olden days, which are in the time of Darwin, when Darwin was making his discoveries, was a female scientist who was very interested in bugs and animal life. And she was communicating with Darwin, who lived in England, right? I'm pretty sure. Yeah, Yeah, and this is, so she's living in America, he's living in England. They're communicating with each other and sharing each other's scientific finds. Mm. And she befriends someone who's living in a neighboring house who is a professor at a local college. And he's, he very much believes in Darwinism, but is taken to task by other members of his professorial community who do not. And so there are some scenes in the book where they're having, they're literally in auditoriums arguing each other's points, you know. Mm-hmm. And so it's very interesting. And then the, the thing, the um, present day, not, um, chapters are where we're in the here and now and it's a couple an older couple who have grown children and one of the children is very involved in like the financial hedge fund community and the other is trying to save the world okay and so it's kind of that whole thing the way that I saw described in one review is you know that it's the whole idea of evolution and extinction is really what she's looking at. So there was the beginning parts where people were understanding how our world works and that the world's not flat, et cetera. Right. And now it's like, whoa, what are we doing to the world we live in? Yeah. You know? And one really just kind of interesting thing that I'd never seen in a novel before 
And I don't know if this is how she was trying to kind of pull you back and forth to how, you know, it all revolves around this house. So the couple in the here and now is living in the house where the the gentleman who was the professor in the back in the day portions lived. Mm -hmm. And the house is deteriorating in both eras, which is also an interesting notion of like the world kind of coming to an end, you know. But what she does is the last words or sentence in a chapter is the chapter title for the next chapter. Oh, that's neat. Which I have never seen before. Yeah. Have you ever seen that? Not that I paid attention yeah. to. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's so very obvious. I mean, it, probably, it took me maybe three chapters to get, oh, this is what she's doing. And it was really interesting, I thought. Oh. So that's a little aside. I like Barbara Kingsolver. I know you said you haven't been able to get into her. If you go back to like, the Bean Trees or mm-hmm. one of her early books. Mm-hmm. Her new stuff is so different. Is it? Okay. But she's always been interested, I think, in, in the environment. Yes. You know. Yeah. So, and that's yeah. why um, in the, one of the graduate programs I was in was at the University of Nevada, which has the center for, uh, oh my God, what is it called? Well, it was the first graduate program for the study of environmental literature. Mm. And so a lot of my colleagues there were really into Barbara Kingsolver because of the environmental aspect of it. And I thought for sure I would love her because all my friends loved her. You know how yeah, that goes, yeah, right? Yeah. But I just couldn't get into her. And I tried the Bean Trees. I tried, what was the other one? Mm, Prodigal think. Summer. What's the one? There I was like, was her first one the Bean Trees? I don't remember. Yeah. But anyway, so, but I did I did read the her nonfiction, that Animal Vegetable Miracle. I'm looking at it right now yeah. to get the title right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Not mineral. So maybe I'll try one of her more recent novels. God, what's the really famous one that both my kids had to read? In oh, it's school? the one about the the um, the missionaries. Yes, I can't think of the title right now, but I know a lot of people love that one too. One well, of the women I used to work with, her her parents, her family, they were missionaries. What's really funny about that book is I've never read it, which is, oh. is kind of, it's one of those. Oh, where, oh it's the Bible. Bible. That's it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Jinx. <laughs> um, both of my kids read it in high school. I never yeah. had to read it. And it's one of those kind of like, <clears throat> excuse me, Toni Morrison, where I feel like a total fail because I yeah. haven't read it. So when I was packing up my house to move here, I saw it on Rachel's bookshelf and I took it. Nice. And then put it in with my books. Because yeah. I was like, ooh, this is going to become mine. And she, when I moved here, she's the one that unpacked all my books. And, and she I took was it in the other room. And I heard this holler like, what are you doing with my copy? It was so funny. <laughs> that's awesome. So I'm looking for it on my shelf. And I realized, oh, that's right. I don't have it. Because she took it. That's so. funny. Yeah. Well, that one, that, the friend of mine that had the missionary family, she loved that book. And so it had that missionary experience, yeah. too. But then other people who obviously haven't had the missionary experience love it as well so that's one reason that it does intrigue me a bit but it's a chunkster of it a is book, a chunkster. so that would be yeah. a time commitment have i mentioned that little women is a chunkster of a book <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry more on that to come yeah, she just looked at me with this look like uh, <laughs> let me tell you about a chunkster lady so, all right so just read what did i just read i actually dnf'd Ooh. a book not because i wasn't liking it but because i had to get to little women but that was Fatal Crossing by Lone Thiels, mm-hmm. the novel I was telling you about, the thriller about the girls that go disappearing on a ferry from, uh, gosh, I don't even, was it Denmark, Norway? I don't even remember already. Uh, and Somewhere t- over so, the ocean. Serial killer. It wasn't that I wasn't enjoying it. I just, I needed to put it down to get to Little Women. And do you think you'll get back to it or no? I don't know. Yeah. It's still it's sitting there right on my 
table next to my desk yeah. as something that's my action table for yeah. reading. Um, so we'll see. Your TBR table. Yeah. And then, and this is not a book, but it's related to a book. There's a new adaptation of Picnic at Hanging Rock. Oh. You know, that classic Australian novel that yeah. I tried to read and couldn't get into. Yeah. So I watched the first episode of this. It's on Netflix, I believe. Netflix or Amazon. I don't remember now. And again, I'm drawn to it, but repelled, oh, even with this adaptation. Because I think the adaptation, it's like trying too hard, or maybe it's just too heavy-handed. I'm not sure. Hmm. I don't know if it's the fact that it's supposed to be set in the 19th century or thereabouts, but also has a lot of contemporary feel to it, and that isn't meshing well in my brain. I don't know, but you would think Picnic at Hanging Rock would be something I'd like. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't know. I don't know if I'll watch any more than that. That was a, a closely related just read. Yes, and <laughs> kind of DNFers. Yeah. Um, I finished It Happened at 2 in the Morning by Alan Herska. That's the one that I was on the wait list at the library forever, got the book, and then drove my daughter across the country, etc. Yeah. So I struggled with it a little bit because I started it, was really enjoying it, put it down, came back, kind of didn't remember what was happening. But I liked his writing style a lot. Mm-hmm. He was, as I've mentioned before, he's a, a lawyer, but he also does screenplays, or what do you call it for a... Screenplay is for a play. A screen... Uh, a, a play is for a play. What do you mean? No, what do you... <laughs> There's screen... I always get this confused because screenwriters write for movies. Screenplays. So what do you write when you're writing the play? You just say you're writing a play. You don't call you're that a playwright. A play. You're a playwright. Right. Oh, my gosh. So you're a playwright writing a play. Oh, this does not bode well for... And they call it, like, once it's in production, I think, like, they call it the book. Okay. And then there's, you know, the music if it's a okay. musical but the book, the book. when they okay. when you see book by that means like the actual play from what i understand i could be completely okay. wrong so he has <laughs> he writes like that so his when i was reading it i was like this must be what it feels like to be an actor when you read a screenplay or something because it was almost like and sadly i had to return it to the library because mm-hmm. it was i waited forever to get it and then i returned it like six weeks late and someone had it on hold but I wish I could read you a little portion of it because it was almost like how I picture an actor picks up a screenplay mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever, a play play. Okay. And um, it says, you know, you walk into the room and you turn left and this happens. Oh, sure, it was yeah. almost like that, his yeah. writing. Like he could cut to the chase so quickly and set a scene. Mm-hmm. Essentially, his scenes to me were not that I've ever been an actor. You know, I did read Laura's play, so maybe I do kind of understand it a yeah. little bit Yeah, the stage directions. The stage and, directions, yeah. exactly. It almost mm-hmm. read like that, mm-hmm. which is, I really appreciate, because I don't like a lot of detail, mm-hmm. you know. I don't like there to be a page to describe a stop sign, as I like to say. So I liked that about his writing a lot. And he, so they were very, it was like staccato music, short sentences. The problem for me was by the time I dug back in, I didn't really care who killed the guy, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So I was reading it just to read it and kind of read his words. But, you know, yeah. when I got to the end, I was like, okay, next book. You know what I mean? Right, yeah. So yeah. that part was funny. Because I, yeah. I think I didn't say anything about the plot, which is that a very wealthy business owner is murdered at the very beginning of the book. And they accuse his daughter and a guy that just happened to be a passerby who get kidnapped because they're kind of in the wrong place at the wrong time of committing the murder. And they didn't. So they're on the lam. So the book is kind of about that. Okay. Um, 
short and sweet. Yeah. But so it was fine. I mean, it was entertaining, but yeah. I didn't love it. I okay. guess. So you haven't read plays then. Really, I haven't read plays. Okay, that's something. God, they're hard. Well, yeah. I think that's challenging to read. Like once you get into the flow, it's a little bit better. And if you read a couple of them, I've read I, Shakespeare. Well, yeah. So there yeah. you have it. Like that's you know, yeah, the master right there. Yeah. So when I used to teach, uh, one of the requirements for teaching at one of the places was um, you also taught in the humanities department. What do they call a cornerstone course on Western civilization? So. Um, we read like Mother Courage and The Importance of Being Earnest and Three Penny Opera. So like once you get into them, mm. oh and Faust, which is really amazing. I maybe we could do that as a read along sometime. I'm Ooh, okay. <laughs> um, because like I would like to. Laura reads a ton of plays. Yeah, being a playwright and yeah. actor, director. So yeah, maybe she can give us guidance yeah. into one that would be really fun to read. Right. Exactly. You know? And then we can act out scenes. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> So it yeah. happened at two in the morning, Alan Hriska. Cool. Well, I also finished the audiobook I was listening to, Code Girls, The Untold Story of the American Woman Code Breakers of World War II by Liza Mundy. And I enjoyed it. I kind of feel like I didn't pay attention to it all the time when I was driving, you know? Yeah, of course. Um, so yeah. it was that kind of audiobook. I, I'm sorry, who's the narrator i don't have that in front of me the narrator didn't engage me a lot mm. she was a little too consistent in her delivery a which, little monotone you mean yeah i wouldn't go so far as that but yeah yeah maybe yeah. maybe that is the right word and i just don't want to feel like i'm harsh or anything well it doesn't monotone to me doesn't necessarily mean like she read it like this and i couldn't <laughs> listen it's more like there's something in the tone of their voice yeah. that just, you know, like it kind of becomes white noise. It does, of, right? Yeah. Exactly. That's yeah. exactly it. Yeah. So maybe if we did an episode <laughs> like that, people would quit listening. Should anyway. we try it? <laughs> but the actual oh content God. was good. I mean, it, I was mostly interested. She In the beginning, she talks about not just World War II, but goes back to World War One. And um, a woman, I'm sorry I don't have her name in front of me, which I wish I did. But she talks about the groundwork of American code breaking. And as in so many things with America, it seems to be kind of like a rich, eccentric guy who is funding things and takes off from there. Or the military. It's one or the other. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it was really good. I mean, she talks about how the Navy and the Army recruited women from different colleges, the training that they went through, and one thing that kept getting kind of hammered home repeatedly was just the fact that the work that these women did was so secret, and they were told they could never talk about it. And even mm-hmm. after the war was over, a lot of them got letters saying, your work is still considered top secret. You cannot talk to anyone about it. And I think women formed about 60% of the code breakers who were involved in code breaking during World War II in America. So that is an awful lot of women. So, like, part of me was angry listening to this book because it feels like women contribute so much to so many different important efforts in history, and then they just get forgotten Mm. or they get written out, or, like, in this case, they couldn't talk about it themselves. Um, But the praise in the media and other places often went to the men mm. or people assumed code breaker equals male. Right. So, 
That's yeah. so funny. I didn't think about that aspect because I lived in Maryland for a long time. Both my kids were born and raised there. Not raised. Born there. Mm-hmm. And um, so many people worked for the NSA that I met. And they would you would say, what do you do? And they'd say, I can't tell you. Mm-hmm. So to, when you were saying that, I was just thinking, oh, yeah, well, there's a lot of people who work for the military that can't. Exactly. But I didn't think about that part of it. Then the historical significance right. of it. Yeah. Know? So women are always constantly, yeah. you know, Two steps forward, three steps back right. is how it feels quite often. Um, but I, I enjoyed it. I'm happy I read it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But maybe reading it or not, the narrator didn't wow you, which I get. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, she didn't. You know, we talked last time about how some narrators, they, it's a performance that you can yeah. kind of hang your mind on. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's you pay attention more, yeah. and and not, I think that's just a real, it's a skill, obviously. Mm-hmm. Like, Colin Firth, I found out, has narrated some books. Mm. And I'm thinking, like, I don't care what the book is. I will just listen to <laughs> Colin Firth. Like a British man in my ears for a little while. <laughs> uh, well, I read A Place for Us by Fatima Farheen Mirza. This book is everywhere right now. This is, is another one. Michael handed this to us. He did not talk about it because we ran out of time when Michael was on episode 39, Michael Kindness. This is the um, book by, that's Sarah Jessica Parker's new import print, oh, SJP okay. with Hogarth, but yeah. with Penguin Random House. Mm-hmm. There's so many imprints within imprints, I, I don't really understand I used it. to have a chart with really? all of them, and I'm, that changes from year yeah. to year probably, so yeah. Well, Sarah Jessica Parker's starting, this is the first book she's choosing in this imprint but you know she's starting she's going to be very involved I think in the book world I have started following her on Goodreads Mm -hmm. you can do that and what she did with this book is wrote some different comments about how she felt about it on different pages Mm. and she did say you know this this has spoilers this comment has spoilers which I thought was smart yeah I loved this book it was yet another distraction from little women (laughs) I'm afraid But it's a family saga um, kind of starting around the place of one of the sisters is getting married, and it's an Indian-American family, the parents of which were an arranged marriage with the husband already being in the States and the mother being an Indian coming over to the States and then, you know, kind of leaving her family in India behind. They raised three children together here in the States, so those children are Indian-American. And it's always that tension between... You know, and they're Muslims mm-hmm. and the tension between, you know, the old way of doing things and the new and arranged marriages versus not. And so this daughter chose her own husband. But the, they go back in time about the children's upbringing. And it's just it breaks your heart in several places. There's, you know, that whole thing. I have three siblings. You have one sibling. You know, you can be very different than your siblings and siblings can have very different experiences just growing up in the same family with the same parents, you know, based on their birth order and their needs and how the parents can meet their needs, etc. So this book is just beautifully woven in that way. And then, like I said, also looks at the idea of, you know, do you, do you prescribe to your parents who, have more formalized notions of your religious upbringings way or do you do it some new you know insert some of your own new ways and um i think she dealt with it really well it is a debut novel mm-hmm. i think it's pretty cool that sarah could just sarah jessica parker picked a debut totally that is 
and it, it also um, goes over the time period of 9-11 a little bit. So it also does deal with the issue of being an Indian during the time of 9-11 and some people accusing you of being a terrorist and things like yeah, that. Yeah, just because yeah. you're not white. Right, yeah. exactly. I loved her writing. I thought her writing was beautiful. And the it's told in different parts. And the final part is the, the father's... I'm going to use a word that I'm not sure is the right word. Soliloquy. Going on and on and rapsing poetic about raising his children and things he thought he did right and things he thought he did wrong. And I liked it. I thought it went on a little too long. Mm -hmm. That was my only complaint about the book, which didn't stop me from reading it, you know, at all. But I liked part one and part two a little bit better than part three. Very cool. A Place for Us, Fatima Farheen Mirza. Interesting. I wonder if, because that is an advanced reader copy, Emily read, I wonder if in the final his soliloquy was edited at all, or if it's still there and all yeah. its glory in the, as in the yeah, art. I don't yeah, know. And I don't know what that word means. A soliloquy? Yeah, I just made it up. That, no, I didn't make up the word, but I made up <laughs> that I think it's the right word for yeah. that part. Yeah. Maybe I should look at the definition, but... Well, I think it's a solo speech type thing. Okay. Not so necessarily a speech then. speech, but okay. yeah, it's solo. Okay. okay. Okay, good. Loquacious, like, you know, count, yeah. Okay, good. Yay. As far as I know, but... Right on. All right. Correct us if I'm wrong, listeners. Yeah, let us know. Yeah. Did you read anything else? I don't think so. Did you go on any biblio adventuring? Well, I did. I did, as I mentioned earlier. I went up to uh, Wesleyan RJ bookstore. I met our buddy John, Valerie, our mystery man, um, up there, and we had dinner and did a little shopping. Nice. Yeah. I tried to restrict. I was planning on buying just one book. I ended up buying two because John was no help. No help, John. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, so I picked up the Why Buddhism is True, and we talked for a while with Alex who's one of the booksellers who's always there. He might be the manager. I'm not even sure. But, yeah, so we talked a lot about books with him, which was a lot of fun. Well, that will also encourage you to buy more than one book. Exactly. Whenever you get a bookseller involved. They're pretty good at that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I did that, and then I went to CrimeCon. Yeah. Which is an annual one-day conference held by the Mystery Writers of America, the New York chapter, which also includes Connecticut and some other some of these other small states in the area. And this year it was at the Ferguson Library in Stamford, Connecticut. And I've gone twice before when it was in Westbrook, um, Westport, I'm sorry, Westport at the library there. But that library has been undergoing a big renovation. So they found a new home here. And it might be a different place next year. Who knows? But it is a great one-day conference. And what I like about it is it's in one room. So they have six panels, three panels lunch, another three panels. So you don't have to pick and choose what to go to because it never fails that you're at a conference and there's two panels going on at the same time, you know, and Absolutely. you're not Hermione with your time turner. Right. So you, you know, have to make <laughs> I, that, that hard totally decision. stresses me out. And then yeah. I sit in the one that I choose thinking, I wonder if I should be at the other one. Right, exactly. Yeah. The guest of honor was S.J. Rosen. Roseanne is how you pronounce her name, I, I learned. And I've only read one book by her, uh, China Trade, which I really liked. It was one of the first mysteries I remember reading when I first started getting into them. My mom read it, too, and really enjoyed it. So she was there. It was, um, let me see, I can pull out some other names. Katie Torpy, Tom Straw, David Rich, 
David Handler. Uh, they did a panel on uh, called Real to Real. Get the inside scoop on how it's all done in the battle zone between literature and showbiz. Ooh, Because they're cool. all people who've written for TV or movies, as well as uh, some of them has, have also written novels um, and short stories and stuff. So that was really interesting. The second panel was uh, moderated by John Valerie, and it was The Thrill of Fact-Based Fiction. Learn firsthand the joys and challenges of research in the modern age of Google and Wikipedia and when good old shoe leather research is essential. I love that. Yeah. So the authors involved in that was uh, James Ben, Jane Cleland, Karen Olson, and Charles Salzberg. And that was interesting. I've only read, uh, well, I have James Ben. He, he writes a mystery series set during World War II. And he's a Connecticut writer. So I, I have an arc for his forthcoming novel, which I'm looking forward to because it's one of those series that I've wanted to read, but, you know, yeah. so many books, so little yeah, time. So I'm looking forward to that. And I did read Karen Olson's, her first novel in one of her series that's set in New Haven called Sacred Cows. Yeah, and, I yeah, remember. I enjoyed that. It, when John has spoken about her, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah and okay. he's done interviews with her. Uh, and then the third one was really fascinating. As real as it gets, as the title, Death Investigator Michelle Clark interviews Dr. Kristen Hartnett McCann, forensic anthropologist with Connecticut's chief medical examiner. So they talked about what it's like to actually investigate crime scenes. In other words, they talked about blood splatter, right? You know what? <laughs> it was so beyond blood splatter. Like, blood splatter is children's games. Oh, God. But if you want to avoid blood splatter, one of the things that um, Kristen said was that the best way to dismember a body is to freeze it first. Oh, good to know. Because keep that in mind. much less blood. Yeah. <laughs> Easier to saw and everything. So freeze um, your bodies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that'll be an upcoming book by somebody who was there. Oh my god! Yeah. Well, and then also the the best way to get rid of a body is I think it's mir- not muric acid. I forget the name of the acid, but there's an acid out there that will dissolve a body within a day. Or that's the whole. That was the first episode of Breaking Bad for yeah. anyone who watched Breaking Bad. They put a guy in yes, a bathtub and did exactly, that. Yeah, and it fell through and yeah, everything. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. they didn't say what to use as. To put the body in. But anyway, so actually, Kristen Hartnett McCann, she, she's a PhD. She teaches. She's also a consultant on a lot of different shows like Bones. Mm-hmm. Um, because as a forensic anthropologist, she's studying Bones is what she does. She told us a couple of really amazing cases she told us about involving bones and just tiny fragments of bones. Mm-hmm. Like there was this one case where this guy killed somebody and disposed of the body Talk about criminals being dumb. Like, one of the things, he killed the person and then went to the hardware store and bought all the supplies to get rid of the body. And she's like, okay, so for one, if you're going to go buy the supplies to get rid of a body, pay in cash. (laughs) And probably don't go to the same store for everything. Like, kind of spread it around if you have, you know, the time or friends you can trust. But then they, they, they dismembered the body and then they burnt it. And then they threw the remains in a pit in one area. And then some of it ended up in the septic tank. So they they found a lot of bone fragments here and there. And she said, what it is, is like, you can find like the hand. She's like, so say you find a finger. And it could just say, well, well, yeah, I cut his hand off and he ran away. He's still alive. I didn't kill him. That's the point she made. Okay. So if if you can find body 
parts or bone parts from the whole body, then you know the person's dead. Right. Okay, so they actually had a septic company come. They dug the whole pit out. They sucked all of the stuff out of the septic tank and picked it out by hand. And then actually the septic guy went into the tanker and pushed the rest of the stuff out. So they found bone fragments that basically covered the whole body. Like, she knows bones so well that she could just look at a little bone fragment and almost tell, you know, what bone it goes to. I can't believe she does that for a living. Yeah, well, she also, she had been in New York for the longest time and was in charge of the remains um, of people from 9-11 and doing the DNA matches with that. Mm. And... uh, and that that was hard, mm-hmm. you know, because she said normally she doesn't deal with people. Mm. She's just dealing with the bones. But in that job, she dealt with the the victims' families, wow. which was, she's like, that is not something that you're trained to do. Mm-hmm. And she's like, you know, that takes a special person who can turn from working with the, the body fragments to then a, a relative right. who is in major grief. Yeah. So anyway, with that case, with all those bone fragments, they were able to put it all together and, and convict the guy wow. who did it. Yeah. Interesting stuff. So then we had lunch after that, and everybody was like, <laughs> oh my God, we're talking about this stuff before lunch. And I'm, Shouldn't and they I have served like, us boneless well, chicken? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's better to do it before lunch than after lunch. I guess you know? that's true. Yeah. I guess that's true. I didn't think about that. Um, so then the three panels after lunch, um, I did it my way, how to master craft, control, and promotion when forging your path to self-publishing. So they were talking about self-publishing, and that was moderated by Tom Straw, with the panelists being uh, Bill Curatolo, Jill Fletcher, and Jeff Markowitz. And then the next panel was about traditional modes of publishing, how publishing works in the real world, insights into how successful mystery authors launch, maintain, and supercharge their careers. That was moderated by Chris Koff. And panelists were um, Neil Nyren, Gina Penetary, and then Cheryl Kane. And Chris was the one who was moderating the whole conference. He was like, five minutes, people. Five, like, he was on it. Like, nice. you know, we're supposed to have a 15-minute yeah. break. He was like, yeah. five minutes. Yeah. So by the time the five minutes were up, it was actually kind of 15, but we started on time. Yeah, yeah. So he was really I great. I appreciate people like that. I do, too. Yeah, it was really wonderful. And then the last um, panel was actually a, an interview between Charles Salzburg and S.J. Roseanne. To thine own self be true mm. was the name, title of the conversation. So, cool. yeah, it was a really great day. And I'm a member of the Mystery Writers of America, so I think I only paid like $35. But even if you're not a member, it's not required to be, to be a member. It was like $45. Yeah. So there was a light breakfast. Lunch was paid for, too. You found out how to kill a person. I mean, that's worth $35. It's always good. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, <laughs> I think it's probably disposing is the more important part, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god yeah but i thought wow for cupcakes all, yeah yeah so freezing people yeah and wow. then cutting them up in a bathtub nice yeah. okay good to know yeah Chris. so that was good and the setting was really wonderful the ferguson library is a wonderful place they have a nice uh book sale section down there run by the friends of the library Really well organized, quite large. A lot of people in there shopping. Nice. Yeah. Lovely. Thanks to Mystery Writers of America for another great crime con, and I look forward awesome. to next year. Good. 
I went up to the Wheeler Library in North Stonington, Connecticut. It was an event sponsored by Bank Square Books. And it was Jennifer Egan who wrote Manhattan Beach. Beautiful library, kind of in the middle of nowhere. Uh-huh. It used to be, it was built in the 1900s, um, and it was a school and a library. So the first floor was the school, the top floor was the library. Beautiful setting, mm-hmm. very tall, high ceilings with these cool old lights hanging down. And then it just ended up being this lovely evening because Jennifer Egan's book, Manhattan Beach, is you I, the whole time I was like texting Chris and sending her pictures because I just felt like she should have been there because it was it's a historical novel all about these um, the naval yards in New York City and people particularly a, a female who worked in the naval yard during the, the World War II when all the men left and women had all these jobs mm-hmm. you know and she was I've got to dig up my notes yeah I so um, wish I could have been there yeah yeah if I can read my notes. Well, the women did several things, and one of the things they did was doing welding. Mm-hmm. And um, this, what, what Jennifer Egan did, how she got inspired was her son, well, I should back up. She got very interested suddenly in water and noticed that there was a lot of water around New York, which cracks me up because it is an island. island. Yeah. Um, and but it's it, funny, though. When you live someplace yeah. and you're from there, you don't always pay attention to it, right? right? In the same yeah. way outsiders do with fresh eyes. Right. And so she got enamored of the water, and then her son happened to be in a preschool that was very near the New York Historical Society. And she went there, and she came upon these letters between Lucille Culkin and her husband, Al, who both worked at the Naval Yard. And Al got sent off to the war, and Lucille kept working. And she wrote notes to him, like letters, I should say, to him. And she came across them, and she said they were like... The perfect letters to read because she was kind of a gossip and she was just a wonderful letter writer and she shared with Al all the comings and the goings of the Naval Yard. And so when Jennifer Egan, who is a journalist by trade and does these incredibly intense research articles for places like New York Times Magazine and stuff, got enamored of this idea and went to the Naval Yard she said there were still maps of from World War II hanging in these kind mm-hmm. of left-behind, forgotten areas because the area has been abandoned and is no longer used. Mm-hmm. But I think this was like the early 2000s, and now in just a, a decade time span, it's actually become a very hot commodity, and different tech businesses have moved in, and there's restaurants there now and stuff. So it doesn't resemble at all the, the naval yard she visited when she first started coming up with the ideas around writing something about these characters who worked at the Naval Yard. But I guess part of... So so she did tremendous amounts of research. She actually, by the time she decided to dig in even farther, this woman, Lucille, had passed away, but her husband, Al, was still alive. Mm -hmm. And she actually got in contact with one of her daughters, and they did a tour of the Naval Yard. And she she was so funny telling the story, like... She and Al kind of took one look at each other and looked away because it was kind of embarrassing because she felt like she knew all manner of things about <laughs> Al because of these letters that her wife had been writing to him, you know? Yeah. So um, so she anyway, she did a lot of research, and also what ended up happening to these women when the war was over is they, had, they were very skilled at something that they could no longer do. Yeah. And one of the women, a, another real woman who she came across, Ida, who was one of Lucy's friends who was a welder, 
she was such a good welder and women were so kind of revered because they were so small that they could get on these naval ships and really do repairs that a lot of men couldn't do. And she tried to get a job as a welder after the war and she was just laughed at and was never able to become a welder again. And she said it really affected her. Yeah. You know, that's something that, um, that Liza Mundy talked about in Code Girls mm-hmm. was after the war. Like it was like, thank you for your service. You, we don't need you anymore. Right. And a lot of women, some of the women, the Code women, were able to continue on with careers. Yeah. Because it was so specialized. But for the most part, so many of them didn't, and they mm-hmm. didn't have that passion anymore right. that they loved, and they were expected just to go off mm-hmm. and yeah get yeah. married and make a home for some man right. and have kids right exactly. which is great if that's what you want if to it's do, what you want to do right it's you know well the other thing that she got enamored of was the world of deep sea diving because a lot of times in order to repair these ships they actually have to go down and work on the outside of them and there were just very few female divers back during the war and even now there's very few and so she interviewed them, and people who've read the book say that that the, her depiction of being a deep sea diver is very accurate. It's so cool. Yeah, yeah. So I, it really made me want to read the book. I have mm-hmm. read her book, A Visit from the Goon Squad. I mean, I have so many notes, oh, but I'm not going to so go cool. on and it on. But like it was a great event. Yeah. She was she was late, which she felt badly about because she was driven to the event from New York. She lives in New York. And she said she got in the car and the driver was like, you're never going to make it there by 6. The event was supposed to start at 6. Okay. So I got to the library as early as 5 and because I wanted to work there first. And they said, oh, she's running late. And she did. She got there at 6.30. Oh, but, that's not too bad. But it was very well attended. And um, she definitely, not her first trip to the rodeo. I think this is like her seventh book. So she also really knew how to do an event, which was fun. Yeah. And, I didn't realize she's had so many novels. I didn't either. I didn't either. And the thing that I really appreciated, because y'all know how I feel about an author reading, she talked and talked and talked and set the stage that you were so interested in reading the book. Then she read, Mm. which I thought was brilliant. So I wanted to hear part of the reading of the book, you know, and she didn't read very long, but it was a really nice, because so many times they walk out, sit down and read. Mm-hmm. You know, and right. I'm just not like the stage hasn't been set, and I want to hear from them first. Right. So yeah, so I thought she did a really good job, and um, I definitely it moved higher up on my list now, and it is out in paperback. So that's Manhattan Beach by Jennifer Egan. Well, that sounds really good. Sounds yeah. right up my alley. Yep, yep. I you and you would have loved the event. She yeah. was so intriguing. So well, and then the next day we were going to an event together. We were going to meet at Bank Square Books. In Mystic. In Mystic again, um, with our mutual friend Emily, the the other Emily. Yes. Um, and we got there to find out that the event was canceled. Yes. Wah, wah. That it was, was kind quite of funny. a bummer. And the funniest part is Chris is in the store shopping. We didn't know it was canceled. We didn't know it was yeah, cr- we yeah. walked in and there's this sign on the front door with just a little bit of black pen saying "reschedge," which I didn't notice when yeah. I walked in. So I'm there and I texted Emily. I'm like, "I'm here." Right. And then so we, the three of us, are standing there talking, and the event got can't you know was canceled. Like, what? Really? Can't yeah. believe they didn't send out notification. 
And somebody said, well, you know, I, I don't get their emails. And I was like, well, I do. And I didn't get an email from them. <laughs> so I whip out my phone and I scan through my emails. And sure enough, at noon that day, right. an email went out. But I didn't check my email. So yeah. Clara well, said, yeah. we'll be rescheduled. I think she's going to be, it's going to be a bigger event at Mohegan Sun in the fall. Okay. So more to come on that. Yeah. And she's doing the rounds with her paperback burning girl. And I also did want to alert people to an event that you can watch from the privacy of your own home on your computer or your phone, which is um, an event that I really wanted to go to was Roxanne Gay in conversation with Aya Monet in New York at the New York Public Library because she's making the rounds for her book, Not That Bad, Mm -hmm. Dispatches from Rape Culture, which she edited. And I just happened to be on my computer on Facebook and I was like, wait a minute, there's video of Roxanne Gay talking right now, like a Facebook Live they were doing. And so I caught the very tail end of it, but they archived it. So you can go to the New York Public Library and watch this conversation, which was just the little piece I watched was unbelievable. And I'm going to go back and rewatch the whole thing this week. So I highly recommend it. I will put a link to it in the show notes. Okay, cool. I'd like to watch that too. I know our listener, Colleen, in Chicago just saw Roxanne Gay in Chicago. Oh, how so. nice. Yeah. And then another friend saw Bill Clinton and James Patterson in conversation for their new book, The President is Missing. There was just a big review of that book in the New York Times review this oh, yeah? weekend. Oh, yeah, did it get, got a good review. It did get a good yeah. review. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, upcoming jaunts. We have one joint jaunt tomorrow, hopefully. Matthew Dix, who is a Booktopia alum and also does the Speak Up Storytelling, which I've spoken about several times on the podcast. I love to go there. He does that with his wife, Alicia. Has a new book out called Story Story Worthy. Engage, teach, persuade, and change your life through the power of storytelling. So that's pretty cool. He has a couple novels out. So this is his first book writing about storytelling, which is pretty cool because, I mean, he's very well known in the storytelling community and has won moth championships several times, I believe. So, yeah, yeah, it should be a good book. Yeah. So he's got an event at the RJ's in Madison tomorrow. tomorrow. So we're going to try to check that out together. And then an upcoming joint jaunt later in July will be to go see Anne Boyd Rue, hopefully, at Orchard House in Concord, Mass., which is the home of Louisa Louisa May Alcott Alcott. and the Alcott family. Yes. So more to come on that. I do want to visit the cemetery up there, too, and Sleepy Hollow. Yeah. See a lot of the famous dead 19th century authors that I love so much. (laughs) Make friends with a few ghosts. So upcoming reads, what's on your agenda coming up? March by Geraldine Brooks, which is our next read-along, everybody, to have your comments in by July 19th. And March is about, it focuses on the father of little women, Mr. March. And I'm really looking forward to it because there is, I'll just mention something about little women now. You know, the aunt mm-hmm. in, in Little Women says something about March. They'd heard from mom saying that he was doing better. He was on the mend. And she's like, well, that won't last long. He probably won't last long. March never had much stamina. So I'm just wondering, <laughs> like, if that's going to be, I can't wait to see what Geraldine Brooks does with that character of March. Yeah, I know. Mr. March. Because so. he's really not in the book very much. He's not. Yeah. He's not. And yeah. I know, like, okay, 
Yeah. Okay. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about that. Yeah. Well, I also have small animals parented in the age of fear, which is the one I talked Mm. about. It was one of the buzzy books from the adult section of the book expo buzzy book thing by Kim Brooks. I started it and got about 50 pages in, um, but had to leave it behind when I left on my trip and haven't gotten back to it. Okay. So funny because, like, I don't know if it's just me and my background, but sometimes when people say adult books, my mind goes to adult book places. Yeah. Like, adult books mean something totally different. They do. They can. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I just think about when I lived in North Carolina and you see those huge signs at truck stops saying yeah. adult books. Yeah. As do adult movies, but um, we won't go there. This is a different kind of adult yeah. book. Yeah, sorry. Cyber. And then the other one I have is they mm. might may not mean to, but they do a novel by Kathleen Shine Sheen. That's a great C H I N E. It's a beautiful cover. This is for my one book club that I'm in where we meet quarterly. I kind of can't believe I'm already picking up our next book because it seems like we just spoke yesterday. Yeah, it's a it's a backlist. This has been out for quite some time. It came out in 2016. But I'm really looking forward to it. It has good reviews. Mm-hmm. So, And we tend to read dark. And this one is, I think we all said, let's go a little lighter this okay. time. So, so that's on my list as well. Cool. Well, one on my list, it's the other book that I picked up when I was up at um, the Wesley and RJ, is Sudden Death, The Great Hurricane of 1938 by R.A. Scotty. Sudden Death? Oh, sudden sea. Oh. Did I say sudden death? Yeah. Okay. Does it have a lot Let of death? Let me say that again. <laughs> sudden sea. The Great Hurricane of 1938 by R.A. Scott. Yeah, no. Sudden sea. I'm sure there's a lot of death. Um, the, the hurricane of 1938 devastated New England. It was a hurricane that did more damage inland than most hurricanes right. do. I'm interested because just reading local history, you hear so much about the hurricane of 1938. And also, Willa Cather... Yes, it's 51 minutes <laughs> as I say that. But Willa Cather loved going to Jaffrey, New Hampshire, and she'd stay at the inn up there. And after the hurricane of 1938, it was devastating for her to go up there because the forest behind the inn was completely mm-hmm. devastated. Yeah. And it's so fascinating to me because critics have been so hard on Willa Cather about so many things, and this is one of them. Like, I've heard people just be so dismissive that, like, yeah, she didn't want to go because the trees got knocked down or whatever. But when you look at it in the context of the hurricane as a whole, like whole forests were taken yeah, down no, by this hurricane. Yeah, it was a big one. Yeah. So like it completely changed the landscape yeah. and the economy of New England. So that is one reason why I wanted to read a book. There are a couple different books out about it. And I chose this one because the author has also written several thrillers and novels of international uh. espionage. So I thought it might have more of a zip to it pacing, than yeah. uh, some historical books can. So there we go. I'm gonna. We have still have to talk about Little Women. I know we're going to go long, but I just have to say this is hilarious because I was with my gentleman caller last night and we were walking on him and Asset, and he and we're walking um, towards the end, but the skies are darkening and darkening and darkening, and he decides he wants to start telling me about his watch which tells you all about barometric pressure and all this kind of stuff. And he starts talking about the hurricane of 1938. Oh, that's awesome. And if they'd had a watch like this, it would have saved so many lives. And I'm saying to him, Jim, 
This is really interesting, though. Can we turn around and start walking back? Because the store, like, I think we're going to get rained on. What is your watch telling you? And he's just like, we're not going to get rained on. And sure enough, you know, the last five minutes of our walk is a dash, mad dash for the car because it is just a... You know, pouring. It was a yeah, bam. Yeah, it seemed to come out of nowhere. Big storm right? last night. Yeah. But but people refer to that hurricane often in these parts because oh, it yeah. was so devastating. So I'll be interested to see what you think of that. Part. And it was yeah, it said yeah, left a wake of death and destruction across seven states. Yeah, yeah, yeah it had quite and a it, range. And it was one of those things like the day before was perfect, gorgeous summer day. Yeah. That's then, kind of what he was saying as yeah. the skies were darkening. I'm like, you know, this isn't really the time to tell me a hurricane story, Jim. <laughs> so, right, so now we go back to Civil War days. Little Women. Go back to the 1860s. Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. And thank you so much to everyone who have been sharing pictures of their book or sharing their comments and thoughts about Little Women. Yeah. It's been a lot of fun. It has, and it's been so cool to see people's really old copies that they've been, you know, trekking around with since they were eight years old. And, yeah. and also just the number of people, so many people have done massive rereads and rereads of this book. Yes. So many times. Yeah. I just love that. It's great. And the edition we read is the new one from Penguin Classics, the deluxe edition, um, which is edited, or there's an introduction actually by... Um, Patty and, Smith. Well, yeah, Patty Smith wrote the foreword. The foreword, I'm sorry. And then, yeah, um, Anne Boyd Rue did the introduction and edited it and has notes in the back. And we just want to uh, thank Penguin for sending us these. And oh, I just want to note, too, that we decided to do the read-along and we requested the books from them. We're not hosting this read-along because they asked us to. So we right. just wanted to clarify that. So I, re- I read the book the first time in my 30s. This is my second read. For you, it was your first My read. My first read. We, yeah. Do you want to start talking about your impressions? Sure. Well, first I have to tell you that I have, I think I mentioned earlier that I downloaded two different audio versions and I listened to one version all the way through mm-hmm. and then I decided I wanted to listen to it again and I still hadn't gotten the second version and the first audio version that I downloaded was eight hours. Mm. Listened to it all the way through, was halfway through again, so on hour 12 of listening to Little Women, when my second one came available. And I was like, oh, this is perfect. I want to switch narrators and hear, you know, what this version is like. That one was 17 hours. And I thought, something is awry. Yeah. I was totally confused. Finally got the book out, which I had read the foreword, and I had read the introduction, and I had read... Anne Boyd Rude has some, ed, um, what do you call them, editorials in the back, I guess she yeah, calls some them? Yeah, sh- like, yeah. Sure. Contextual essays, yeah. I'm sorry, is what she calls them. And I came to discover that Little Women, there's two parts to Little Women, mm-hmm. women part one and part two. Part one was originally the whole book, and it's right. about when they were in their youth. Yes. There was such an outcry from fans that they wanted to know what happens to the young women as they become women, adults, that part two was written. Uh In the United States, Little Women is published as part one and part two. In Canada and England, they are published separately. Right. Yes. Yeah. So America publishes one book. Right. Yeah. yeah. So the version that I was listening to that I thought was the complete book was a British version. Oh, interesting. Okay. So I thought I had listened to all of Little Women, and then I start reading things. I'm like, here's a, our first big spoiler. One of the sisters dies? 
I'm like, what are they talking about? And then I, that's part of why I listened, started listening a second time. I'm like, I totally missed like this big major event. Well, that happens in okay. part two. Yeah. Right. Right. So I had to do a massive, quick part two listen slash read. Okay. Excellent. So I just wanted to point because I'm also texting with my sister who's listening, and she's like, "My version's 17 hours. What's going on?" You know. Mm-hmm. So now I know. Good to know. Yeah. I've been in some used bookstores recently, and and I've just been kind of curious to see about Little Women and the editions that are out there. And and I have come across a couple with, you know, volume one, volume two. Yeah, yeah. Separate editions, yeah. So, but to get back to your original question, I did not love it. And what I'm finding interesting is that people who are reading it as adults for the first time aren't necessarily loving it. And they're asking that question to Mm -hmm. us. You know, I wonder how I would have felt if I had read it for the first time in my youth. Exactly. Yeah, I know our listener Suzanne asked that. She said, you know, it's her first read. She's in her 40s, and she just says that, you know, she gets a sense that she may have identified with it a lot more at a younger age herself, closer to the age of the girls. Because when the book, in the first book, Meg, the oldest sister, is 16, Joe is 15, Beth is 13, and Amy is 12. Right. And then the second book starts, like, what, three or four years later? So they're a little bit older. Meg is, again, you know, she's married and has kids now. and Right. But then our listener Kate says, Uncle, I'm on page 100 and giving up. I never read it when I was younger, and I remember why. Just not my cup of tea. I'm looking forward to the episode to hear what everyone else has to say. Yeah. So there's someone who tried it in their youth, didn't like it, tried it again, Mm -hmm. didn't like it. So, you know, and then uh, our listener, Lisa, who what happened to me is interesting because I'd already done a read, a listen through, I should say once. Okay. And I read Lisa's comments and she really didn't like it. And she felt really badly about it. Interesting. And her daughter, who was is a teenager, had just read it in school. And she said she didn't like it either, but many of her friends did. And it almost helped me to read Lisa's review because part of what she questions is, you know, am I not liking it because, you know, I'm not appreciating it enough for the time period in which it was written? Mm-hmm. And also, you know, she said something which I really felt like, too, is, you know, I don't want to raise a daughter, you know, which we're doing in this century, you know, to be to to just be seeking love and getting married. I want her to be wild and untamed. And, you know, so by by reading that with Lisa and then listening to it full throttle again, I realized, like, I do want to try to step out of all of those things that Lisa just said that. I agreed with 100% and just try to appreciate it for the writing and for Louisa May Alcott at the time and place when she wrote it. Right. Yeah. And I think that's so important because when you think about this time period, women didn't have a lot of options. Mm -hmm. Women of certain classes. I know, you know, poor women have always been working. Um, This is people, this is a middle class family who kind of lost it all mm-hmm. in the story. The the story goes that the father was helping somebody who needed the help and lost all his money that way. And it's also during the Civil War, so he's off, and the women are trying to make ends meet. They do have a rich aunt who apparently helps a bit here and there, and two of the daughters are out working. Right. They have day jobs. So, But I think... It, it, I think it was pretty radical for its day. You know, I mean, it follows some of the conventions of children's literature from back then, 
But in other ways, it doesn't at all. Especially the character Joe, who yeah. is, you know, kind of, you tomboy. think, yeah, she's a tomboy, but also she's got this suitor, you know, who's the neighbor boy who really wants to marry her. And she's like, nope. Not yeah. going to have it. Not going to be a good gonna, fit. And yeah. that's what Marmy, the mom, says. Yeah. Like, you're too much alike. Mm-hmm. And Joe already has no interest in Lori, the boy. Um, but the mom says, well, good, I'm glad to hear that because you're too much alike. You would not have gotten along within a couple of years. It would have come crashing down. Right. So right. one of the things I like about the, the looking at relationships is that it's not just that the women are looking for love and in the marmy even says like i don't I, I wish for you to be happy whether you find someone to love or whether you stay and love the family it doesn't matter to me mm-hmm. that much yeah. which i think was probably a pretty radical thing for yeah, the day yeah. um but uh one of the things too is at the very end of book two when they're at that picnic they're having the picnic at, at joe and her husband's home for boys um, let me actually find that. So it's on page, at least on this edition, it's page 462. Uh, so it's really towards the end. And they're, the girls are talking, the women, I should say, the little women, they're talking about their old dreams that they had and how some of their dreams have come true and some of their dreams have completely changed, which I think is true of people. Like mm-hmm. I know some people who had these dreams as kids and they're fulfilled living them out and other people their dreams have completely changed from when they were kids because right. you know people grow do. and change and yeah. circumstances change people sure. whatnot um so i think this is just as joe who was talking about you know her dream she's like yes i remember but the life i wanted then seems selfish lonely and cold to me now i haven't given up the hope that i might write a good book yet but I can wait, and I'm sure it will be all the better for such experiences and illustrations as these, pointing to where they are right now. And then there's a little bit more talk, and then Amy says, My castle is very different from what I planned, but I would not alter it, though, like Joe. I don't relinquish all my artistic hopes or confine myself to helping others fulfill their dreams of beauty. So, so what she's saying is, like, I ha- even though I'm married and I have a kid... I'm not giving up my dreams and my hopes, mm-hmm. and I'm not living just to make other people's lives better. Mm-hmm. So I think that was really radical for the time period right. to be yeah. able to say that. Yeah. And I also wonder if, you know, not only the, you know, that, sh- that Louisa May Alcott presented different options that maybe women hadn't been presented, but also that there just weren't many books that had a family of young women without a lot of men in it, you know, trying to make their way, kind mm-hmm. of, you know, and that that's why women read it and reread it and reread it because there just weren't a ton of options of yeah. books like this. So I tried to really appreciate yeah. that on listen number yeah. two. And I loved know. it because, like, she presents this family of girls, like, and they're not always getting along. Right. It's a like, real family. They are, they're yeah. having problems yeah. with each other, they're frustrated with themselves. You know, I mean, God, talk about spoiler, but that one scene when Amy burns Joe's manuscript. Yeah. I'm like, what the? Yeah. And then, you know, they have a tumble and Joe actually hits her upside the head. Yeah. And I think this is not like peaceful little 19th century women. Like these are real girls duking it out at home. Yeah. Which I appreciated. And and so I liked it. I, I, I enjoyed the second read. It was... 
hard at times because it took a long time. It took longer than I thought it would yeah. to read. Yeah. I wasn't reading at my normal pace, mm-hmm. but I was trying to give myself to the book and really enjoy it and really, like you did, try and think about, okay, what would it have been like? I mean, it's hard to. You can't erase your memory. You can't erase everything that's happened since your life 1865, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but to try and understand that and mm-hmm. to see, like, how fresh this had to seem Mm -hmm. to young girls Mm -hmm. who were, you know, used to reading stuff like Pilgrim's Progress, which was a huge 19th century bestseller. And I actually have never read it, but I did pick up a new edition at last year's Book Expo. Yale put out a new edition of Pilgrim's Progress, which I picked up because it's one of those books when I was studying the 19th century, you sometimes read what people in the time period read just to understand a bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I haven't read it yet. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. I, I liked too, and this is a very conservative thing to say probably, but I liked that it really details how people develop a conscience mm-hmm. and how to be conscientious about your life and other people's lives and society. Hmm. And I really appreciate it in, in this day and age when so many, you know, we're, everybody's talking about the warring factions and the tribalism, and it's, this is for me and mine, and fuck everybody else. Right, yeah. Excuse me, I'm, <laughs> excuse my language, I know there might be young people listening to this, but that's the truth, like, that's yeah. the attitude today. Yeah. And I kind of feel like this is a great book for democracy, mm-hmm. because it's talking about being true to yourself figuring out who you are and what you want and being true to that, but then also taking care of other people. Yeah, that's a really beautiful way to say it. And I enjoyed it for that. And I thought, wow, (laughs) you know, it's kind of conservative to think that way, but I kind of... I don't see that as conservative. I think it's speaking to that whole idea of even why people have read and reread it, that a lot of the times a book speaks to you because of where the place you are at the time you're reading it Mm -hmm. right yeah so it's interesting that that's your interpretation of reading this book that's 150 years old and think about what the people who were reading it 100 years ago and 150 years ago you know Mm -hmm. felt about it you know based on where they were in their life right I mean the other thing is like I mean I was thinking about like I think I had said I don't know if I said this on the last episode, but I definitely know I said it to you when I was when we were on our way to Book Expo and I was reading it on the train on my e-reader. And the beginning is all these uh, is a play because they put on a lot of plays Mm -hmm. for each other. And it's their form of entertaining each other, which I found agonizing (laughs) to read. But I had this I mean, I have things written all over the place. Like, you know, I was listening to it in my car. So my mints in my car, like I'm scribbling on the mints. (laughs) <laughs> in my car because I don't have a piece of paper. That's Just funny. like that the plays were like think about the extraordinary numbers of just channels we can get on our television oh, yeah. now, right? Right. And you know, we can listen to podcasts and we can listen to serious radio where you can listen to a radio station from Saudi Arabia if you want. You know, it's like endless opportunities for entertainment and they were entertaining themselves by reading plays you know they were darning socks because they probably had two pair right you know so I really tried as I was reading it particularly the parts that I found kind of agonizing like (laughs) put yourself there Emily you know why why Mm -hmm. is this what she's writing about 
what were the people who originally read it? Why was it so popular and has been popular forever? Yeah, and know? that's such a great question. Why? Mm-hmm. I think even contemporary books, like why is this in there? Yeah. It's a great way to read a yeah. novel and a story. But yeah, I agree. Like why? Mm-hmm. You know, they made up their own plays. They acted out other plays and books that they'd read. And it's Jane, there's some scenes like that in Jane Austen novels as well. I think mm-hmm. in Northanger Abbey, especially, there's a they're putting on a play. But yeah, I think. Yeah. What do you do to entertain yourselves? I mean, there was nothing. And people, some people rail against novel reading. Um, I think that might have been, it probably is still happening in the 19th century, but even, in, you know, 200 years before that, people thought novel reading was a bad thing. Yeah. And it corrupted people's minds and it made your mind soft. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. And, you know. Well, and what about just Louisa May Alcott? I mean, it is, we should say, I mean, I don't even think we gave a little kind of backdrop of what the book's about, but um, it is this, this, this mother and these four daughters who are home during the time of the Civil War. The father's off at the war. And the part one, part two, when they're adults, the father is back. You yeah. Know? But um, it's, it's autobiographical. So Louisa May Alcott, the author, the character, the daughter Joe is supposed to be her. Yeah. And um, and then her sister who did, did the sketches that are Amy. in Amy yeah. is also, you know, one of the real sisters yes. in the book. Yeah. Um, but she, there, as Chris mentioned, the family got into, the true Alcott family got into fiscal trouble and they were living in the Boston area and Henry David Thoreau, who was a friend of the family, when I say that out loud, that just is amazing yeah. to me, encouraged them to come to Concord, Mass. Where they, yeah. yeah, where they lived. And and the the kids really helped the family survive, including yes. her writing, you yes. know. And the dad, there are a lot of different takes about the father because he did not provide for his family, which is how a lot of people would look at it now and condemn him probably because he wouldn't work mm-hmm. because it, certain things were against his philosophy. Mm-hmm. So there were a lot of times when the only thing they had to eat were the apples from the orchard. Mm-hmm. And that was it. Yeah. Like, and now I think a lot of people would look at that and think like that was abusive. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. um, but the community really helped them a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Branson Alcott. There's a whole thing about this at this time period in American history, uh, utopian societies were springing up all over the place, and there was one called Fruitlands, which he was involved in, and yeah. Hawthorne was uh, part of the transcendentalist group. He was kind of more on the outskirts, maybe, but he was part of that whole group and wrote a satirical novel called The Blythdale Romance, which is about that utopian society, which is funny as hell, mm-hmm. I think, even yeah. though he kind of trashes Margaret Fuller, who was another peer from that time period. But yeah, they had it rough, mm-hmm. and and she supported the family a lot with right. her writing. Yeah, which is impressive that that happened. I mean, I just feel like I like her. For I do. Sure. Yeah, I like yeah. Joe a lot, and yeah. I I still liked her just as much as I did the first yeah. time. And and one of our listeners, Suzanne, um, also said too that, and she's from Canada. She didn't grow up in the United States studying the Civil War in the same way that most Americans probably do. But she's like, you know, it didn't really, it's told, It's considered a Civil War novel, but she didn't really see it that much. And I think part of that is it, it is set in the North, and the Civil War didn't touch people in the same way it did Southerners who were in right. the combat zones. 
Um, I think the way it's most represented is that they have a profound lack of money. There are scenes that where like Marmy is cutting out uniforms from a blue cloth, so she's making uniforms to send, and they're obviously, you know, the dad is sick down there. And he was like a, a pastor. He, yeah. Or he wasn't like a combatant. Right. Yeah. So he was yeah. there and fell ill. But in real life, Louisa May Alcott went down there as a nurse. Right. And her book, Hospital Sketches, is, is according to um, um, Rue's note in here, is still considered one of the most important documents of the civil war right right because she had she wasn't there very long she took ill but it was you know frontline you know kind of court what do you call those the correspondents now that are oh yeah yeah like a war correspondent correspondent. that's what her essays were right and that's how she kind of got on the map and um you know yeah that that book was very important yeah yeah were you gonna say something else about that because i was gonna say something no are you changing the subject I was going to. Go for it. Okay. I was just going to say that um, one of our other listeners on the Goodreads group page said that she was a bit surprised by the mother's encouragement for the girls to marry for love and not status, Mm -hmm. and that she thought that seemed wonderfully different for that time period, particularly with a family who wasn't, you know... They could have used a little status, yes, you know, or a little exactly. injection of cash. Yeah. Well, and <laughs> so. Amy struggles with that, with that guy, Fred, who was right. kind of courting her, who was really wealthy, like right. more wealthy than Lori's family. And she's like, it's okay to marry for money. I'll learn to love him. Like, he's pleasant. Right. But then she, she realizes she has affections for Lori. Right. Who, you know, this is, you know, autobiographical in the sense Louisa May Alcott based a lot of the female characters on her family members but Lori apparently was pretty much made up although he's slightly based on a polish guy that she met when she was in europe mm-hmm. um okay. but he's you know because i mean Lori is a great guy he is so manly yeah yeah and uh he kind of fits in with what <laughs> different girls are struggling with right and he's which, madly in love with joe yeah well it wouldn't be yeah exactly yeah. and she turns him away yeah so. One of the things I liked is early on, it's on page 77 in our edition, and I was so struck by this, but Joe has a temper, so she has poor impulse control. Mm-hmm. She could probably have executive function <laughs> uh, impairment, <laughs> uh, as we call it now. But So she struggles with this, and she's just really pissed. And Marmy talks to her, and says, honey, I understand. Like, I deal with anger right. myself. And she actually says, I am angry nearly every day of my life, Joe, but I have learned not to show it. Mm. And I still hope to learn not to feel it, though it may take me another 40 years to do so. And I read that, and I was like, I've been angry nearly every day of my life. Like, for a woman of the 19th century a mom to say that that had to be radical yeah you know because women you know especially i mean she is a christian woman and Mm -hmm. she does have this glow and kindness about her so for her to say underneath it all i am angry yeah and you think like the real mom like how angry was she Mm -hmm. and her husband right who wasn't providing for these children that they've had Mm -hmm. talk about like not fulfilling marriage vows Mm -hmm. right i mean Especially for back then. It had to be such a betrayal in so many ways. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Fascinating. That just really struck me very intensely. Yeah. Yeah. 
But then again, too, like, I, I love the fact that Lori and Amy decide to really get into philanthropy mm-hmm. at the end um, yeah. with dedicating a lot of their wealth mm-hmm. to helping women who have artistic inclinations and whatnot. And then Joe opening the home. So right. Joe, the spoiler alert, the aunt dies and Joe inherits the house. And, of course, everybody assumes she's just going to sell it to get the money. And she's like, no, I have a plan. Right. And her husband, Professor Bear, they're going to open a school because Joe loves boys. Right. And so she wants to open this home for wayward boys that nobody else wants. And, of course, she starts with wealthier boys because she said they need help, too. They need attention, too. They're sometimes neglected. So the wealthy boys' families kind of support the institution, but then she takes in all these boys who, what she, they stutter, they stammer, they may have physical disabilities. One of them is a quadroon, which is not a term that people use anymore, but that was somebody who was 25% African-American. Mm-hmm. And, and people say, when in the novel, they say, you know, that's going to be the downfall of the school to have that person there. And I guess in real life, that was one of Branson Alcott's problems was he had a school that got trashed because he had an African-American yes, kid in that's it. True. So, and because he, he was in the whole family, they were abolitionists. Yeah. So. Yeah. And that's not big in this book, the whole mm-hmm. abolitionist no. movement at all. But I'm assuming that I have not looked. I'm assuming that's what Joe's Boys, her other book, is about. Yeah. Would you assume that? I would assume truth? that. Yeah. yeah. I saw a copy at that. The friends of the library at the Ferguson Library, they had a copy of Jill's Boys, but I, I didn't get yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I'm not ready. Because i got to say, I'm really happy to have reread it, but I'm really happy I'm done reading exactly. it. Exactly. Oh, no, I felt that way. Yeah. I finished this morning. Did you really? I was like, oh, my God. I mean, I think part of what was hard for me is, I mean, I'm very happy to have read it, and I'm yeah. very much looking forward to reading March. It's not like I feel like... Oh, God, trouble, you know. Right. But um, I think part of it is having just gotten back from Book Expo and having these stacks of books that I've been trying to organize, you know, right. and you just feel like. And, and I have to say that I was very surprised at how long Little Women was. I had no idea. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is a chunkster, and it it's really not is. fast reading. No. so It's not at all. So this new edition of just the story itself is 464 pages. Right. So um, did you want to talk about anything else? Because I wanted to talk about the film and TV adaptations. Well, I just wanted to say, you know, like there are a couple of things. Like one of uh, the, the probably the most famous quote attributed to Louisa May Alcott is, I'm not afraid of storms for I'm learning to sail my ship. So that was fun to actually read that in the book and yeah. see. And I believe it's Amy is the sister who actually says that. And I, I just love so many of the things that they, they say in this book. Like, at one point, another character... Let me pull this up. This is on page 371, if you have this edition. So this is the mom. Don't shut yourself up in a bandbox because you are a woman, but understand what is going on and educate yourself to take part in the world's work, for it all affects you and yours. Mm. This is when Marmy's talking with Meg, the oldest daughter, about... Her marriage, like they have the little kids. I think the kids are like three, mm-hmm. and their marriage right. is like completely not necessarily falling apart. But John, the husband, is out every night mm-hmm. because he comes home, and Meg is like, Shh, don't wake the kids, right. or yeah. she's busy taking care of the kids, and kind of, you know, they're kind of like neglecting each other. So, Marmy is just like, you know, you need to include him, right? And in helping I with the thought children. was radical for yeah. that time period, too. And it made me think, like, 
the dad wasn't, you know, he definitely was participating in the kids' lives. Yeah. You know, when he was there. When he was obviously there. Obviously, he had been John, to work. you mean Meg. No, but the dad, the, the, um... Mr. Marsh. Mr. Marsh, yeah. also. Because she said, you know, you have to give them tasks. Right. You know, if you're doing everything, they can't mm-hmm. participate. Exactly, you know? yeah. So that was cool. There's, there's so many of those really wonderful small bits of advice that I think are still very relevant today. Because right. I really think so much about this book. It is about relationship and mm-hmm. relationship yeah. your, to yourself and to your family and other people. And uh, just one more small thing that I thought was kind of funny when Joe is off in New York and she's learning how to write or, you know, she's been writing for a long time, but she's learning how to write in different ways. Um, and she, so she took to writing sensation stories. Right. For in those dark ages, even all perfect America read rubbish. <laughs> I love that sentence. It made me laugh. But then uh, just a couple pages later, she's, figuring out how to, to to write these stories a little bit more. And so she sets about supplying her deficiencies with characteristic energy, eager to find materials for stories and bent on making them original in plot, if not masterly in execution. She, she searched newspapers for accidents, incidents, and crimes. She excited the suspicions of public librarians by asking for works on poisons. She studied faces in the street. This is what people were talking about at CrimeCon. Right, exactly. Like, exactly. Pe- writers yeah. still do these same things. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's really great to see that some things change and yeah. some things never will, probably. Well, and that's a good segue to me that, you know, in follow-up to my response to reading Lisa's review and kind of rereading the book with that in mind and appreciating it, was also a vast appreciation for the fact that I have so many choices as a woman in my life now mm-hmm. and that the life I live in is different. And I have 15 pairs of socks in my drawer and you know what I mean and I do have channels on TV that I enjoy watching and I really had appreciation for that but then on the flip side was I thought it kind of probably was cool to live in a time where you didn't have so many choices and it was not not that you didn't have the choices but it wasn't as complicated do you know what I mean that I'm not I'm saying that came with its own layer of complexity sure, too. Sure, different things. But yeah. you know that it just sometimes I feel like we have too many choices now mm-hmm. and there's too much complexity and too much opportunity to not have relationships with people. Yeah. You know. True. Yeah, so, I really true. appreciated it from both perspectives. I was like, "Ooh, I'm so glad I don't live back then." And, "Ooh, what yeah. would it have been like to live back then? Maybe some of what we have ain't so great." You know. Right. Well, and I even remember and this is kind of from the 1990s, but um, after the Berlin Wall went down and the Eastern Europeans had more opportunity to purchase things, a lot of people who came to the West from Russia and some of those Eastern countries, I remember reading this one article about how overwhelmed they were and depressed Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. they're like, you go to the store and you look at, like, there are 30 different types of detergent. Right. Like, how do you make a decision? Right. And they just shut down. Yeah. Because it was too overwhelming. When you think, you know, they're like, you know, we stood in line and we got a box of soap and that was it. Like, right. Yeah. You didn't have to think about it and worry about it and yeah. am I making the right decision? Right. You know? Yeah. So I think there's a lot of that. And I'm sure contemporary psychology backs that up. Yeah. I agree. Choices and yeah. what it does. Overwhelming. Mm-hmm. I'm really glad we read it. I'm so. too. I, I'm, I can't wait also to read Anne Boyd 
Rue's new book on yes. Little Women and Why It Still Matters. Mm-hmm. I, I'm really looking forward to reading that and talking with her about it, too. I am, too, because I'm fascinated by people who are spending so much time. I mean, we're, we just did one read of it and one little discussion about it, but mm-hmm. she's obviously really engrossed in the conversation, so I'm yeah. really excited about that, too. Absolutely. And as Chris mentioned, when we first introduced the idea of doing this read-along, there have been a ton of different adaptations of it. And I had quite a surprise because in the back of this edition that we have, there's a section called Suggestions for Further Exploration. And it's divided into these different categories like film and television adaptations, fiction, um, nonfiction, contextual sources. And under the film and television adaptations, there's one um, Little Women starring Susan Day written by Susan Clouser directed by David Lowell Rich, 1978. And this was a two-part, four-hour miniseries aired on NBC and is available on DVD. Hmm. Well, there's a little typo in here. Really? It's actually Suzanne Clouser is the person who wrote it. Suzanne Clouser was my neighbor in Yellow Springs for 20 years. Yeah, really? Yeah. Well, that's too funny. No idea. No idea that she did this adaptation. She was well-known for being a writer of Bonanza episodes, and she also published um, many books, but she was well-known for her book called A Girl Named Sooner. Hmm. And I, when I saw this, I thought, she, um, sadly, Suzanne passed away in 2016, or I would pick up the phone oh, wow. you know, as soon as I saw that and call her and say, how did I not know this about you? Yeah. You know? So... A lot of connections. Yeah. So Chris and I, in the past, when we've done a read-along, we have kind of taken a break and watched... A film adaptation and then recorded some more. We have not done that, but we intend to, you know, since we're doing a summer of Little Women, we yeah. intend to do that together yep. in the future. Watch a couple. Yeah. So this is not the end of our Little Women discussion. We will right. be talking about Little Women at least through August. Yeah. And I know that I the one adaptation I did see was uh, the one where Susan Sarandon played Marmee. Yes, me too. And... Gosh, I can't think of the woman's name who played Joe. That's um, that's the one with um, oh god, it'll come. What to is me. her name? One on a rider. Um, there it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the only one I've seen as well. Okay. And there's a very new one that just came out in 2018, starring Maya Hawke, who's mm-hmm. the actor Ethan Hawke's daughter. And um, there was a little, we had a little um, back and forth on, I think it was Twitter about this because it's a, it was co-produced by the BBC and PBS. But we haven't been able to find it. No, you you have to pay for it, apparently, okay. at this point. Um, it was streaming for free for a while. Okay. But right now, at least as much as I can find, you do have to pay. Okay. Um, but we'll, we'll look into that, and we'll let you know if PBS will be running it again. Because yeah. hopefully they will. Usually they the do. Summer. And usually you can just watch it on their, on their on, from the website. But. Yeah. I really want to watch the 1933 adaptation. Starring Katherine Hepburn Me too. as Joe. Yeah. Because supposedly, um, as the note says here, that it's her performance is believed to be the quintessential performance. Yeah, I would Joe. like to do that. And it's so appropriate as we live down the street Living from where she used to Maybe live. we can ask the Kate if they would put that on. Because they do show her films occasionally. Mm-hmm. And they show other idea, films there too. Being that it's the hundred and fiftieth yeah. anniversary. Well I'll contact them yeah. and ask. I know somebody who was a volunteer there and see 
Because yeah. that would be a lot of fun to see on the big screen, especially. The Kate is, an, is a theater in Old Saybrook. It's a performance center that yeah. Catherine Hepburn founded. and Right. Um, they have a lot of different performances. I mean, live performances, movies, they do a lot of different things there. I think tonight, actually, they're showing Jaws. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> so, great. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's a neat place. Well... Yeah. So that wraps up our at least our initial conversation right. about Little Women. In our very long episode 53. So thanks for sticking with us, everybody. Happy reading. Happy reading. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. To keep the bookish conversation going online, join our Goodreads group or connect with us on social media. If you'd like to contribute to our hunt for a good read, you can donate on Patreon. And if you have a minute to review us, On whatever app you use to listen to us, we appreciate it. It can help other listeners find us. Thanks, everybody.